Well, as we anticipate uh, Christmas and a time of thinking about and remembering and celebrating the birth of Christ, I'd like to direct your attention to the opening verses of the gospel according to Matthew. I promise we aren't starting a years-long study in Matthew before we even finish Luke. We, we will finish Luke in the spring, but I thought it'd be interesting. You know, uh, when we started Luke, we, we kind of we're timing it to where we were in uh, the Christmas season as we sort of approached the birth of Christ. And we saw how Luke had his specific emphasis there on who Jesus is. So I thought it'd be interesting now to, to spend a, a few weeks here thinking about, okay, well, what, what does Matthew say? Obviously, the Gospels complement one another. Uh, they're teaching about the same Christ. But let's look at Matthew's Gospel to see uh, what he does here with the birth uh, the person, the identity, and the mission of Jesus. You know, one of the big differences that pops off the page immediately between Matthew and Luke is that Matthew actually begins with his genealogy. Right? We saw that Luke waited till the end of chapter 3 to include his genealogy of Christ. So before we, we, we sort of uh, dismiss the genealogy as just something that's kind of uh, just something you have to get through in your Bible reading plan. Right? I want to remind you uh, of, of a story. A couple of you, or some of you may remember this story, but it's a, it's a story of a missionary couple that was working in Papua New Guinea to take the Bible from Greek and Hebrew, learn a new language, and then and then translate the scriptures into this new language that they were working on. They were working with the Wycliffe Bible translators, um, and they're working with this tribe, again, seeking to learn the language so that they can translate the Bible into their language so that they can teach them about uh, the gospel of Christ. And they actually began with the gospel of Matthew. And so this missionary has been laboring, you know, learning, translating, learning, translating, in the book of Matthew, and he got it all done, except he had skipped the genealogy because he thought, you know, I kind of want to get to the narrative. I kind of want to get to the important part so that they can understand who Jesus is and what he's about. And so he finished the whole gospel. He comes back and, and sort of finishes the genealogy portion of Matthew, and he, he presents this sort of final piece of work that he's done. And the tribal leaders are, are like astounded. And they call this meeting with the entire tribe and they say, you have to read to the tribe what you just read to us. And the missionary naturally, like some of us would be thinking, is it's just a genealogy. What are you, what are you talking about? So he goes into this meeting not real sure what they're going to do to him or about what he's about to say. And, and, and they introduce him. He, he's going to read what he finished today. And he begins sort of, uh, again, in their language and saying these things. These are the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of King David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. And on and on he went as he finished out the genealogy. And when he finished, the whole tribe cries out, why did you not tell us this earlier? Why did you not tell us this before? And then he finally got his explanation for why this was such a big deal for this tribe. They said, spirit, ancestors, the, little, the, the animism that they had been involved in, 
They said spirits don't have ancestors, right? They don't have genealogies. Jesus is a real person. This is not just something that, you know, in their words, the white man has brought to us and made up. It's not just his magic. What the missionary has taught us, the story, the narrative, the the perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus must be real. And so the point of this uh, illustration is the part of the Bible that the missionary, and, and we're not above the missionary, right? The part of the Bible that the missionary believed to be the least important in the Gospel of Matthew became the very piece that God used to draw a, a, a tribe to himself for them to see the truth of who Jesus is. So this morning we're going to take a moment, we're going to reflect on the significance of the genealogy of Jesus. In fact, if you look there in verse 1, Matthew sort of gives us a hint as to where he's going with this and what he's really driving at. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right, so Matthew, right off the bat, he tips us off. He wants us to see Jesus is descended from Abraham. He's descended from David. He's historically linked to these significant figures in the history of Israel. But I'm convinced that Matthew wants his readers to do more than just historical work. Right? He wants them to do actually theological work. By this, I mean I think Matthew wants to lay the groundwork for his argument that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. Well, what promises? The promises that were given to Abraham. The promises that were given to David. All right, so let's start there with Abraham because that's sort of after verse 1 where Matthew goes, we see, I think, in these first six verses, Jesus is the Savior that the world needs. We said that we're tipped off in verse 1 of the significance of Abraham in this genealogy. So unlike Luke, who who sort of worked his way backwards from Jesus, this person is the son of this person to the son of this person, the son of this person. He goes from Christ all the way back to Adam. Matthew, again, with different emphasis, making the same point. But Matthew starts with Abraham and moves forward. And so we ask ourselves, why? Why? What is the significance of, of Abraham? Why is it so necessary that to start here and to move forward to Christ? Why is it necessary that the Messiah comes from the line of Abraham? Well, again, we said it's because God has given specific promises to Abraham concerning Abraham's offspring, right? So we'll probably do a little bit more turning today. So if you want to turn with me back to Genesis chapter 12, we'll see some of these promises. Genesis chapter 12, this is a passage we might be familiar with called, the, you know, oftentimes called the call of Abram or the call of Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 to 3 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, Abraham, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now that's a, that's a promise that is reiterated to Abraham in other places. If you think about Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, it says, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So one of the things that was promised to Abraham that through his offspring, through his descendant, will come this blessing that will not just be for the the physical descendants of Abraham, but something that will extend to the nations at large, all the families of the earth or all the nations of the earth. Now what we see in in Genesis as sort of this, this promise develops is that it doesn't just quickly sort of expand to all, again, the physical children of Abraham. This promise sort of takes a particular line through particular people, right? So so the promise um, goes to Isaac and not to Ishmael. So it's not just, again, being physically descended from Abraham from where this, this blessing to the nations is going to come. And the promise, again, it's reiterated to Jacob, not Esau. Jacob have I chosen. Jacob do I love. Esau have I hated. So we see this promise sort of threading its way through, through the history of Genesis. And it's, again, leading, I think it's pointing us down the road, because here's how the Apostle Paul understands the idea of this offspring the idea of this descendant of Abraham. He says in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, Paul says, and to his offsprings, referring to many. Paul says, but to offspring, referring to one who is Christ. So when Paul looks at this promise that's given to to Abraham and reiterated to uh, Isaac and to Jacob, he sees it ultimately meandering its way through history and landing on the person of Christ. He will be the one who ultimately can bless the nations because he is the son of Abraham. Paul clearly understands these promises given to Abraham and to, again, the other patriarchs, the forefathers of Israel, whatever you want to call them, as sort of leading, leading to and culminating in the work of Christ. He is the Savior. He is the Savior who will bless all the nations. He is the Savior of the world. Right? That is not to say that every single person in the world is forgiven of their sins. It is to say, though, that people from all different nations will come to know Christ, will be, will be united with Christ through faith in Him and His death and resurrection. You know, we also see that even in this genealogy that, that Jesus is more than just the Savior of, of the physical descendants of Abraham. He's, he's the Savior of the world. We see it not only in the promise that's given to Abraham that's, that's pointing towards Christ, but we actually see it too in some of the names that are included in the list. You know, one of the things that would pop out as, as, as you read this and um, this list of names, one of the things that would pop out to the first century Jewish reader 
would be the inclusion of ladies in this list. And not just any ladies, right? You might find ladies in in a list somewhere. You might expect to hear Sarah or Rachel or one of the faithful women of old, but the particular women that Matthew chooses to include in the genealogy really stand out, right? In a genealogy where you're hearing so-and-so is the father of so-and-so is the father of so-and-so is the father. 39 times you're going to read that in, in Matthew 1. And then you come across these ladies. It's going to stand out and it's going to draw your attention to them. And you're going to say, oh, well, who are they and why are they included in this particular genealogy? Because the reality is genealogies, um, they, they sometimes skip generations. Right? You don't have to include, you know, we saw in verse 1 that Jesus is called the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right? So there's, there's instances in genealogy where they just skip swaths of people. So the people included in the genealogy matter. That's what I'm saying. You don't have to include everybody in there to be faithful. So if they're including these ladies, it, it stands out to us. Let's just maybe read the first five verses together there, or first five and a half verses Genesis chapter 12. I'm in Genesis chapter 12. I need to get back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and and Zerah by Tamar. There's one of them. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, there's another, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, there's another, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. There's, a, there's another lady that is mentioned. So what's going on? In those first several verses, you see, see these ladies mentioned. Well, we'll come back to maybe one of the reasons they're in there later. But one thing that sort of unites that, th- those first lists of ladies is that they are Gentiles, or at least Gentile adjacent in the case of Bathsheba. Right? We see that uh, Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was from Moab, who had a terrible reputation in Israel. In fact, they were cursed by God in some ways. Bathsheba was married to a Gentile. It's interesting to me that Matthew doesn't even give her name. He just points out that she was married to a Hittite. Right? So, in in some ways, she's connected to that Gentile World. In fact, there's some that would suggest since she married a Gentile, she would be treated as a Gentile. So what's going on? With the promises given to Abraham that blessing will come to the nations, with the inclusion of Gentile ladies in this genealogy, what's going on? Well, I would suggest this. It anticipates that Jesus has come to be the Savior of the world, or we might say the Savior of all kinds of people. He came from, for people from different countries, different ethnicities, to save them and to unite them together in Jesus Christ. And I don't think this is, you know, as, uh, 
I don't think this is getting cute with the passage. Right? Jeff would say, you're not getting creative with the passage, and that's a compliment, right? It, it seems to be an intentional point that Matthew is making. And I would say uh, one reason to believe that is I, I think we would say, okay, Matthew begins with Abraham, with these Gentile women, and he sort of bookends the gospel, his, his gospel account with what? What is, what is doing? This offspring of Abraham, this offspring of David that's introduced in chapter 1, what's the last words he's giving to his disciples at the end of the gospel? Go, therefore, into all the nations. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Seems to me like Matthew is writing to you know, an audience that would sort of pick up on a lot of the, the, the Jewish terminology, Jewish language. He presents Jesus as the Messiah. But what's his goal? To get them moving towards the mission of taking the gospel to, to the nations. So here's... One commentator, D.A. Carson, says this. So with this allusion to Abraham, Matthew is preparing his readers for the final words of this offspring from Abraham, the commission for the disciples to take the gospel to the nations. So as we look at this list of names, I think, again, we're not just meant to do historical work. We're meant to do theological work and ask, what would the original audience sort of pick up on from this list of names I think one thing is that they would see the promise given to Abraham fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Blessing will go to the nations through this offspring of Abraham. In fact, if you're, if you're back in Genesis, look in 17.6. We said this, these, some of these promises are repeated over and over and over. Abraham is told this, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So sometimes, sometimes I think we get to that point in Israel's history where they demand a king, like 1 Samuel 8, and we think Israel was wrong for wanting a king. In fact, they weren't wrong for wanting a king. Abraham was promised that kings will come from their line. If you, read, if you read Deuteronomy, it tells you what a king should be and do. It anticipated that a, that a king is coming. They were wrong because their motive for a king was to be like all the nations. They didn't trust God to fight their battles for them. So their motive was wrong. But they were actually looking forward to a, a, a king who could rule over them from the time of Abraham. In fact, if you think about the way the genealogy develops, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob ends up in Egypt, and on his deathbed he's blessing his children, and he puts his hand on Judah, and he says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So part of what, what even was looked forward to from the time of Abraham is this king and this line of the king would pass through Judah. And Israel was to be anticipating this king. That's exactly where Matthew traces the genealogy. right Down through Judah. 
to David, and then eventually from David to Christ. So as we think about then how David fits into this picture, the son of Abraham, or the son of David, the son of Abraham, we might say, secondly, Jesus is the king the world needs. Jesus is the king the world needs. So verse, beginning there in the middle of verse 6, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So what Matthew does next then is he goes from David to the time of exile, the time, the ESV says, of deportation. So if you're still ready to flip in your Bibles, I would encourage you to to grab one there. You, You might turn to 1 Chronicles 17 where we see this promise. We looked at the promise given to Abraham. Well, what's the promise that was given to David? Maybe we should set the context a bit. David has been... Uh, made king over Israel. Saul broke the covenant and was killed. Now David is king. He, he's, he's brought the ark into Jerusalem, which is, which is a good thing, a good desire. Israel is uh, united under his rule. By and large, things are going relatively well in, in Israel. And David, with all his blemishes, he's, he's leading relatively well. And David, as a man after God's own heart, he looks at his house that's made of cedar and this, this beautiful uh, palace that he has to live in. And then he looks over where the Ark of the Covenant rests, and it's in a tent. And he says, I don't, I don't think that's right. I want to build a house for uh, the Lord. I want to build a temple. And so God sends his prophet, Nathan, with this word from the Lord. Look there, beginning in verse 7. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, that's Yahweh talking to the prophet. And this is the the message that the prophet must give to David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I will declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. David says, I want to build the Lord a house. And David sends the prophet with this message. You tell David, I'm going to build him a house. He's not actually going to build me a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. 
but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So God sends the prophet with this, this promise for David that, that David won't be the one to build a house. He gives some promises that will actually be fulfilled in David's lifetime, peace with his enemies, a great um, name for David. But some of these promises could not have been fulfilled in someone like Solomon, a, a throne established forever. Right, an eternal people promised by God that would come through David's line. You can hear even these, these sort of promises that, that, again, yeah, Solomon built a, a temple. But he wasn't the, the, the long-awaited king that could establish the throne forever. Right? And so God had even sort of teased out some of these passages through various prophets and talked about this deliverer in passages like the one that Neil read this morning from Isaiah chapter 9. Speaking of Christ as, as a child who will be born, yet the government will be upon his shoulders. He will rule on the throne of David forever. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So Isaiah teases out what this, what this king that they're looking forward to will be like. He'll be a son that is born, yet the government will be upon his shoulders. If you were to keep reading in, in Isaiah, you would come across the servant songs where this deliverer, the same one, will actually be pierced for the transgressions of his people. He will be cut off, Isaiah 53 says, from the land of the living. This king will actually be one who is pierced for sin. He will be the savior of the world through his own death, and he will be the rightful king over all creation. As he humbles himself, being born as a child, yet at the right time, God highly exalted him. God highly exalted Christ. Here's what Paul says in Acts chapter 13, when he's sort of, again, kind of walking through the history of Israel, which is sort of what we're doing with this, this genealogy. But packed in the history is theology, right? Here's what Paul says, how we should understand David. When he had removed Saul, that is, when God had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and, and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, okay, from David, from, from David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. That's what Paul says. God promised this to David. And here we have in Jesus the fulfillment of what's been promised to David. He's the, he's the answer. He's the yes and amen to the Davidic promise given there in 1 Chronicles 17. What's interesting about kings in Israel, and we walked through this a little bit in Luke one or two, I can't think off the top of my head, but where it said he will be the son of the Most High, I think chapter one. Jesus, 
what's interesting about kings in Israel is that they were viewed as, as sons of God in the sense that they were to represent their, the Father to the people. And they were to lead the people to be like the Father. Right? So there's this close link as you read the Old Testament between sonship and kingship. They will be to me a son, God said, of, even in 1 Chronicles 17. You see it again in Psalm chapter 2, that, that link between sonship and kingship. That a king in Israel is declared to be the son of God. They were meant to, again, represent the interests of the Father. And as you think about that, that list that we just read, the list from, from David to exile, these kings were meant to represent Yahweh on earth and to lead the people in faithfulness. Right? As we think about that list and as we think more broadly about the, the history of Israel, we might say that some of them did okay. Right? You, you think of Israel after the death of David, after this promise has been given to him, and they're sort of longing for this king that will rule and reign in righteousness, that will establish the eternal throne of David. And, and they think, well, maybe it's Solomon. Right? Maybe it's Uzziah. Maybe it's Hezekiah. Right? Those, those guys weren't all bad. Maybe they're the fulfillment of the promise. But it just, it just kept getting worse and worse. Right? If you read 2 Chronicles like 10 to the end, it's just, this, it's just focusing on Judah. And it's like it just leads to the deportation, to the exile. Right? Things just get worse and worse. And by the time... The events of Matthew chapter 1 roll around. Israel, they haven't even thought about a king, right? Or thought that it could be realistic, right? The king is a Roman tyrant named Herod. And yet Matthew, with his genealogy, he, he's pointing, the king has come in Christ. The king has come. So Jesus, we said, is the savior the world needs. Jesus is the king the world needs. And lastly, he is, he is the hope of the world. He is the hope that the world needs needs. I'm going to try to get back to Matthew here. So verse 11 ended with deportation, exile, right? What does verse 12 open with? Exile. And after the deportation of, to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of, to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, the Christ, 14 generations. All right. I know it's been a lot, right? It's like genealogy, historical theology, biblical theology. It's a lot, right? So stick with me. I think the structure of the text is becoming clearer now. Right? As we've walked through all those verses, you see very clearly there's these three sets of lists. Matthew intentionally records 14 generations from, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, 
And then 14 from exile to Joseph and Mary. All right, so we saw that the line of Abraham points to Jesus' saving work that reaches beyond the boundaries of Israel. The, the, the line of David anticipates Jesus being the king of kings. Right? And now we ask, what is Matthew hoping to accomplish by tracing Jesus' lineage from the time of exile to Christ? Right? From this, this low point to the arrival of Christ. Well, let me just tell you what I think Matthew's doing, and then I'll try to, try to demonstrate it here. I think, I think by sort of ending with deportation in the second list, starting with deportation in the third list, and moving towards Christ, Matthew's drawing our attention to this time of exile and God's faithfulness in actually bringing them back to the land where they would rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls. So some, if you want to think more big picture, right, some have sort of chosen to illustrate this flow from, in Matthew 1, 1 to 18, this, this sort of overarching view of Israel's history, really, from Abraham to Christ as sort of an uppercase N, right? I don't have whiteboard, I don't draw during sermons, so that's, but just, just think about it. And I know you teachers are like, you know, when you draw an uppercase N, you need to start high and you need to go low. Like, I get it. I've t- tried to teach my kids how to write. But imagine you're going to draw your N the wrong way. Like, you start at the bottom and you're going to go up, down, and then up. All right? So if we think about it that way, we, we, we might think that from the, to- from the promise given to Abraham, and I know if you zoom in, like, there's lots of downs in this this time. But if you think about this promise given to Abraham, there's sort of this high point in the history of Israel where King David comes and he's from the tribe of Judah, right? And, and he's a, he is a man after God's own heart. In fact, you know, we've been dealing with Chronicles a lot. If you read First and Second Chronicles, you won't find like the very embarrassing stories that maybe First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, they're, they're not shy about David's failures. Well, First Second Chronicles sort of pushes those to the side, not because they don't want to be realistic about who David is, but they want you to see, like, this is a big deal. Abraham's been promised kings. The, the, the line was to go through Judah. Here's David. And here, this, this is sort of a high point in Israel. The temple uh, is in process. Solomon's going to finish the temple. God's presence is going to fill that temple. I mean, that is, that is a high point in Israel's history. That is that is a big deal. And so you got like from these promises to Abraham to this sort of fulfillment in some sense in David. But then we just looked at that line from David to, uh, you know, David to the time of exile, right? It's just like a downward spiral, right? So you're starting here, Abraham, you're going up to David and Solomon. That was a good time. And then it's just a list of kings. Some of them are okay. Most of them really bad. Right after Solomon, the kingdom splits in two, northern Israel uh, or the northern kingdom called Israel, uh, the southern kingdom called Judah. By 722 B.C., Assyria has come in. They've conquered northern Israel. They, had, they didn't even have as many good kings as Judah. Like They were, they were a mess. Right? So they're conquered by Assyria. A short time later, Babylon begins like deporting people. There's a couple different times where they sort of went in and took people out. But then there was just like the ultimate where they go in, they destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, 
I mean, when you think exile, that's what's going on. Babylon has come in and they've destroyed Jerusalem. And the people have been hauled off to exile. Right? And this would be a humiliating experience for the Jewish people. Right? They were meant to be a light to the nations. They were a kingdom of priests. They were God's covenant people, the sovereign God. They were promised peace and prosperity and long life in the land if they could keep the covenant of their God. Yet they, were, yet they rebelled against Him and they were hauled off into exile. But what we see in, in, this, in this list, in this genealogy, is that even in the midst of rebellion, even in the midst of exile, God is still persevering in His promise. He is still faithful to what He has said they will do. You know, I think Jeff alluded to this when he was walking through some of these historical books, but at the end of 2 Chronicles, it, it sort of ends with like the destruction of Judah, exile. It seems as if there's no hope. And then there's like this one little paragraph. It says, but then Cyrus kind of comes to world dominance and he says, you know what? I'm going to send some people back into Jerusalem and they can start rebuilding. And so you get a little bit of a glimpse of, of hope there. And this, this third list that we just read, it actually includes the names of some of those returnees out of exile into Jerusalem. If you read Ezra, like Zerubbabel was one of those guys that led the people in. He played a huge role in beginning the reconstruction of the temple. So consider just quickly for a moment um, that as we read that third set of names, right, after Zerubbabel or however we're going to say that, like, we don't know anybody, right, Till you get to Joseph. I mean, you're not familiar with, with any of those names from Abiad there in verse 13 to Jacob, the father of Joseph. We don't know these guys. Yet we see through Matthew's collection here, God at work remaining faithful when he seemed to be silent. Right? He was judging his people in one sense, but he was bringing about his glorious plan. And so he's, what Matthew does, he sort of points us to this time of exile and return to the land. Now when Israel came back into the land, right, it was a time of hope-filled expectation. Right? There was hope in Jerusalem. It was evidence of God's faithfulness. But there was still this overwhelming sense, but like this cannot be all of it. Right? There's still promises out there that are not being fulfilled in what we're experiencing now. There was no king on the throne. There was no Davidic ruler. There was not widespread fear of the Lord and submission to His name and obedience to Him. The glory of the temple departed. Right? In fact, when they finished sort of the foundation of the temple, there's this weird outcry where half of it is people screaming for joy and half of it is people weeping bitterly because the older folks who saw the original temple are like, this is not it. This is not it. This is not everything that, that, that was promised to us. This is not everything that we've been looking forward to. And so there was, though we might say there was much to be thankful when they came back into the land, when they returned to Jerusalem, including a rebuilt temple. Uh, you know, they're rebuilding homes, they're rebuilding the wall. Many 
in Israel understood there's still this huge lack of, of, of fulfillment here. In fact, when we walked through Malachi, we saw like the priests were an absolute mess. They needed a king and they needed a priest who could lead the people and intercede on behalf of the people before God. They were in desperate need of true worship, desperate need of a true king, desperate need of a true, peace, true priest who could intercede for them. And it's into this sort of darkness that Matthew announces, Christ has come. Christ has come. So you move like from Abraham to this high point in Israel with David and Solomon down to the exile. People are returning to the land, but it's not all there is. They're, we're still awaiting these promises. And here's Christ. Here's what God has been working towards. Here's what He has been doing. In bringing about, when the fullness of time had come, bringing into the world the son of David, the long-awaited king, the son of Abraham, the one who is the offspring who will bless the nations and who will restore true worship and be able to intercede on behalf of God and man. So what, what Jesus will ultimately bring, right? the blessing that he brings, is the forgiveness of sins and inclusion into the family of God and in the kingdom of God through his own work. Right, we, we can sort of begin wrapping up this way. We might say that some of the names on the list, and we teased this a little bit earlier, they sort of anticipate the type of people that Jesus has come to save. We said, well, there's Gentiles there, there's, there's Jews there. Well, there's also people that are an absolute mess. There's a sinful people included in this list. Some of you were even smiling when I mentioned you know, the ladies on the list and, and sort of there's a reason they're there. Well, Man, it wasn't because of their stellar reputation before they met the Lord. Right? Tamar pulled some trickery back in her day. You know, I, I, maybe I've told you this before, but my friend was trying to get his mom to start reading the Bible. And, Mom, you should read the Bible. Well, she starts in Genesis and she gets to Tamar and she's like, Are you sure? And he's like, Mom, that's not like saying it's good, it's just telling you what happened. So Tamar was a mess. Rahab, a prostitute in Jericho, before turning to Yahweh and becoming, you know, a, a God-fearing woman of faith. Bathsheba certainly put in a tough spot by King David. But by all accounts, it does not appear that Bathsheba was innocent, right? The Old, the Old Testament said, you know, if you're, you know, a woman should cry out if she's being assaulted and attacked. All right, so it does not seem like she was completely innocent in this matter either. Although, again, King David should have never done what, what he has done. We saw in the list not only these ladies, but we saw in the list wicked kings. There are some awful kings in this, in this list. If you were in Bible Hour last spring, again, you may recognize some of these. Rehoboam and Abijah and Ahaz. This is what Second Kings says about Ahaz. He was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even burned his sons as an offering. According to the despicable practices of the nations. I mean, this is a wicked, wicked guy. 
these guys essentially showed us what a king should not be and what a king should not do. Even, even Judah's good kings fell far short. Hezekiah was moved with pride and showed off the treasuries that he had collected. And not surprisingly, you know, they eventually came and took it all. Uzziah, again, pretty good king. Until he became proud and sort of assigned for himself privileges that belonged to the priests. Again, I think what's going on is Matthew is anticipating that Jesus will not only save all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles alike, but the, he has come to save sinful people. That he has come to save sinners from the consequences of their rebellion against God. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. The genealogy helps us see the type of people that Jesus has come to save. Men and women, Jews and Gentiles, and sinners facing the consequences of their rebellion. Jesus would say himself, I did not come for the righteous. It's not the righteous who need a physician, but the sick. He did not come for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. He came for people like the author of this gospel, Matthew, a tax collector. People like Matthew and people like you and I. Right, so let's end this way. A genealogy in the Bible is more than history. Right, it's sort of, in Matthew, especially, it's sort of tracing the promises of God that find their fulfillment in Christ. And I think, again, you won't find any imperatives in the text. I think this is just, hopefully, and I know it's been so much and it's, it's been hard, but it should cause our hearts to adore Christ. It should cause our hearts to adore Him. When Spurgeon was preaching through this text, he just sort of was walking through some names and he stopped and he said, what marvelous condescension. What marvelous condescension that God should be a man and have a genealogy. Even he, Spurgeon said, who was in the beginning with God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God has condescended, has been born of a virgin, has entered this earth. We should marvel at that. What a glorious Savior. What wisdom from God to save in this way. Right? And we could sum up the glory of this message and the wisdom of this message by a phrase we've been saying, borrowed from 2 Corinthians, that all God's promises, they find their yes and amen in Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, may we just adore Christ from the heart. May we love Him. May we grow in our love for Him. May we grow in our appreciation of the gospel. May we not see ourselves as those who are worthy of this sort of condescension by Christ, but that He has entered His creation. He came unto His own, His own received Him not. But those who did receive Him, He gave the right to become children of God. Lord, thank You for that. Lord, may, we, may you be pleased with our response to him and to you and to your word. May you work in us through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.